Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello everybody and welcome to Writers on Film. My name's John Bleasdale, I'm a writer and film critic and today I'm going to be talking to Jay Glennie. Jay is a writer of a series of making of books. His latest is a detailed account of the making of Danny Boyle's 1996 adaptation of Irvin Welsh's Train Spotting. It's a brilliant, a beautiful book to look at, beautiful coffee table book, although that phrase doesn't really sum up the amount of uh, erudition that goes and, and involvement that goes into making such a thing. He has talked to everybody involved in the making of the film, including, of course, the major stars, the directors, um, Irvin Welsh, but also he, he, he manages to find people who have stories who are perhaps never been spoken to before. It's a really interesting detailed account and absolute must for any fans of the book. If you enjoy the podcast, please remember to like, subscribe. You can follow me on Twitter at DrJohnTDRJONTY. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. When was the first yeah. time you saw it, Jay? When was the, when was your first uh, experience of it? It would have been in our local flea pit here in Chelmsford, Essex. I live in the countryside, but we would, I'd have driven into the town and seen it in our little flea pit. Yeah, it just knocked me. Yeah, it really did knock me. The, the, the fact that I, I actually, like a lot of young guys during that period, had, had read about the guys in all the 
magazines, the faces of such like and Blitz, even before Shallow Grave came out. And that's what really struck me. These guys were, you know, suddenly being talked about as the, the saviors of the British film industry. And that really, oh, who are they? They're being written about mm. in really lofty terms in, in, in these magazines. Fast forward to interviewing Andrew McDonald's, it transpired that the guy who had the flat underneath him was a writer for one of these magazines. He said, if you've got a film off the ground, I'll write about you. And suddenly these three guys, Danny, John and Andrew, were being spoken of as the saviors of the British film industry. And then Shallow Grave came out and it was such a great film. Suddenly we, we could enjoy a film like young Americans could, you know, the Blue Velvets. And then I heard that they were doing train spotting and um, like many impressionable young guys, I went out and got the book. It took me an age to get into the, the vernacular. It really did. But it didn't stop me walking around underneath my arm looking, trying to look cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that paperback with the Halloween masks was yeah. an, a must-have. It was, uh, even, even if you weren't reading it necessarily, it had to be on your shelf. Yeah, 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 yeah. And one of them, the, the, one of the guys masked up his herb. Right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I remember seeing it, I think I saw it at, university i think it was at university and i think it was at the guild and i remember it had an immediate effect on me because and i think it had a similar effect on many young guys of going straight to the barber and having my head shaved to a number four yeah but none of us look quite as cool as you and doing it did we? not not a single one <laughs> not a single one because i remember that was the case as well with football i mean i remember all the football teams you know that buzz that suede head sort of you know it's not skinhead quite it's mm. a sort of suede head sort of look. Yeah. Uh, became suddenly de rigueur. You know, it was what everybody had. Yeah, and that, that's the thing, isn't it? You, you, you tend to dive in. And um, and Ewan at that particular time was everywhere, wasn't he? And um, and Danny told me that when that there was a lot of friction, but there was a John Hodge. He, he was sort of the, mm, really? Well, he's going to be our Renton. You know, he was this gorgeous guy, with his flowing locks. His agent was setting him up to be the next Darcy. And all of a sudden, he, you know, he's lost most of his body fat and shaved his hair off and was going to play this drug addict in this controversial adaptation. But Danny, Danny knew and Andrew knew in particular that they, want, they, they, they wanted a, a star. They wanted a heightened reality, they told me, of, of, of Irvin's book. The last thing they wanted was a Christine F. style version of it. And Danny said, you know, four or five movies could have been made of Irvin's book. But their version of it was going to be a heightened reality, and they wanted to also show that we that there is a a point when drugs, drink, there is an attraction. Without showing that attraction, why would you why would you bother doing it? So they had to show that attraction, and then they wanted to show the downfall. And I think to have that attraction, you really needed somebody like Ewan McGregor to play that that role because you had to be attracted to him. I mean, the heartbeat of the film arguably is Ewan Bremner, but the fulcrum, everything went round Ewan. And he, he actually told me, and which backed up what Danny said, that Danny, he came to Danny and he said, look, I'm not doing anything. Everybody's got their moment in the sunshine and I'm not doing anything. So it all seems to be happening around me. And he said, you and you, and you've got the voiceover. You know, you're our Alfie. And he said that sort of placated him. And then when he came to do the voiceover at the end of the film, he'd come down to London, he could see, oh, okay, now the bigger picture is, and sure enough, I mean, he's not only his career, all of their careers, but, it was the right decision putting you in it as the lead. You couldn't imagine anybody else now, could you? I think that's the role of his career, isn't it? I, I, I'm, I'm trying to think if there's another sort of real knockout role that that he's he's made that really dominates the film so much as well. Even even 
even though it is a, a sort of an ensemble piece. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? Because a lot of his films have been as sort of co-stars. Moulin Rouge with Nicole Kidman, arguably was Nicole the star. You know, he's I don't know him at all, I'm, uh, mm. but I, I got to know him a little bit during this. And um, he comes across just like he does on his bike shows. It's really sort of humble guy and um, pretty laid back and, and really, really humble and under no illusions what the film gave him what train spotting gave him just a really really nice guy as they all are it was really weird it's train spotting when you look at the cast and the crew or everybody has had a career off the back of this film mm. it's just hard to fathom isn't it that that happens it's not always happened oh, what happened to her what happened to him virtually every one of them went Ooh. kevin mckid he said it wasn't my time to pop he had friends telling him to go to america come on kevin get over there he said but i was a young boy from the highlands Mm. I've been eaten alive, absolutely eaten alive. Took me 16 years. He got Rome and his agent said, look, I'm going to put you up for a couple of shows. There was two guys up for the role in his in in, in his TV show, the um, Grey's Anatomy. Right. And the other guy was the... Van Der Beek? Van Der Beek, yeah. What was the no. TV show he was in? Dawson's uh, Creek. Right, yeah. So it was him and Kevin up for the role in Grey's Anatomy. And Kevin got it. Right. Yeah, it was it was over the Thanksgiving weekend. They're gonna his agent said we're gonna they're gonna let us know after the Thanksgiving weekend. So he literally sat there biting his nails down to the quick and he got the role and he, I think he's played that role now for eleven years and he's a huge star in America. Yeah. He's took yeah. about sixteen years to pop, but when it popped, it really popped. And Kelly McDonald as well. I mean, Kelly McDonald had a huge career, no country for old men, and then um uh Board, board, boardwalk Empire, and her, and her casting, as you say in your book, was a real was a real sort of fortuitous piece uh, of casting because she was absolutely coming from nowhere and and fell over when she when she entered the audition room as well. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? You think it's going to be one of those mythical stories because I've heard a little bits about it over the over the course of the last few years, and but it is absolutely true. Saul Metzstein, the young runner. Now a director in his own right, but a young runner on the film was tasked with finding the next Patricia Arquette and uh, roaming the, the Edinburgh for a weekend and then roaming Glasgow for a weekend, looking for this young Patricia Arquette or Kate Moss, handing out leaflets and getting abused by these young girls he was approaching, <laughs> as, as we allude to in the book. And he, 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 um, he was on the, that top table with Gal Stevens, Danny and Andrew. And he said he, he remembers when she walked in, he looked at Danny and Danny, whoa. And when I said that to Danny, he said, yeah, as soon as she walked in, she just stood out. He said, because the others did look a little bit like Kate Moss and Patricia Arquette, and she didn't. Right. Kelly told me a friend had cut her hair a couple of weeks prior, um, so she'd cut all these long locks off. She had holy jeans on, a scruffy jumper, and here she was now auditioning for a film that she thought, I've got no right to even go for. She couldn't afford the, to buy the book, so she read it incrementally in the local bookshop. <laughs> it was either a, you know, a loaf of bread or do I put the money into the um, the, the, the machine to get the photos from for, for her CV? That's crazy. That's crazy. So let's just rewind a little bit to the to the book uh, because I mean, as you say, it's it's a it's not a book that you read and you instantly see a film. No, I think that's the that's the genius of being young. And a little frissy on a danger that Andrew said he was he was passed a book by a, a girlfriend of his and read it on the, the plane back to um, Scotland for the, for the Christmas period. And he opened it up and started reading. It. He thought, oh, hang on a minute. This could be our next film. Came back, give it to Danny Boyle and John Hodge. I said, guys, read this. And John Hodge was already writing A Life Less Ordinary, which was set to be 
their follow-up to Shallow Grave. And Danny was his editing Shallow Grave. They took the book away and started reading it, and both of them fell in love with it. But both of them said, bloody hell, how the hell can these sort of singular vignettes be turned into a, a film? And out of all these stories, how, how, who's the star? Who's Where's the story? You know, where? And John said, okay, okay, give me a few weeks. And he just found Renton. He thought Renton would, could be the star. And then we put, you know, Spud couldn't really, Begbie couldn't at that particular time, Sick Boy. You wanted somebody you could actually root for. And he chose <laughs> Renton. And then say for anybody who's read her work, it's, well, man, he's a genius. Mm. He's a genius. Mm. But how the, how the hell they thought there was going to be a movie. Now it looks pretty obvious, doesn't it? But at the mm. time, n- nothing of the sort. And But Shallow Grave, they were pre-selling Shallow Grave. And it was going through the roof. All the territories were getting bit, um, bought. And um, Film 4 said, yeah. And Polygram said, okay, what, what's next? Well, I had to fancy this film about some job aids. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was you know, shot for just about a million pounds. So the, the risk was negligible. But right. even so, it was a risk. But boy, did it pay off. I love how you write about that pre-development as well, that the the everything, the pre-production and how they're putting the script together and how there's a certain point. I think there's a, a really interesting moment in the book where you talk about how the idea that they have have to begin with someone running and and mm-hmm. that's moved from the middle of the script to the beginning as a viewer you think well how how could it be any other way you know that's that's such a good opening yeah and that just came about when uh, going down to view the highlands and the station that famous station and, and on the way back just chatting and they realized oh hang on a minute put lust for life in there and you've got one of the greatest openings ever haven't you, you really have all shot on the fly, all pushing out spectators, watching, pushing them out the way and shooting down the Edinburgh High Street there. It's just just iconic. Iconic's the right word. And it and it's totally, uh, and you've got that wonderful freeze frame of Renton, New McGregor sort of landing yeah. on the bonnet of the car. And then I mean, it has almost reminded me a, a bit of Scorsese, uh, bringing, bringing it back to one of your other heroes. Yeah, yeah. And it was for them. They, 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 they screened Goodfellas together. And then right. screened it for the cast just to get them. That's the kind of vibe that they what they wanted to foster, and all of them to a, to a person. And I couldn't find them because Danny couldn't find them. Danny had lent them to somebody, but he found me some pages of the mood books that he put together. And they were you know, they had pictures of Montgomery Clift in there. They had pictures of George Best. They had uh, just colours and just designs in there just to get each actor into the mood. And everyone alluded to these mood books. So. Mm. If anybody out there is listening who's got them, they're the holy <laughs> grail of the, of the train spotting story. Cave Quinn, who, who designed all the sets, she she built the sets in, in, in these little cardboard sets she built, hand built, and they all just got thrown away. Because at the time, you know, you're young, it's 1996. Was the film going to go as big as would some Wally like me be writing about it 25 odd years later? And so you don't know what you've got, do you? So there were some things there that you, you didn't find but that was the to me what the other thing that um, came across when I was writing it was Danny said at our first conversation you had to be a believer mm. and so I put that sort of thing in there that every time someone's cast they're now a believer because that Danny said that was so key when you're making a movie almost like a guerrilla movie you know bringing all these components together you've only got a short window to film in you need to be surrounded by believers and every one of the cast and crew were were believers and, and that that really comes across as a viewer doesn't it you're you, you're along for the ride with them 
and that's what I, you know, that's what I wanted to try and create with the book. There was a, there's some stuff that I edited out because I wanted it to be a short, sharp. I mean, I think it's about seventy-five thousand words, so it's not mega short. But likewise, it, I hope there isn't a lot of padding in there. I wanted it to be short, sharp, like the, like the film. Yeah, exactly. It's it's punchy, and and there's a there's a narrative drive, and you're running with them. You know, you're mm. you're you're. It's that same sort of uh, energy that you have. Because I mean, ultimately, when it comes down to it, I watched it again a few years ago. I mean, I've obviously I've watched it. About, you know, I must have watched it ten, fifteen times at least. And I remember watching it after a significant gap, and sort of thinking, and uh, no longer being the kid at university going and getting my head shaved. Mm. Who's more or less the same age as the 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 the, the guys in the movie, uh, but instead being like a you know someone encroaching on middle age, and sort of seeing it more as ah this is a youth film. This is mm. one of those you could go back to sort of nineteen fifties or, or or Teddy Boy's an early Oliver Reed film or something like that, and see a similar kind of the youth in danger, and that it's kind of in that tradition. I think the difference would be that it's seen much more from the perspective of the young people than society, you know, as a whole. Yeah, it could have easily been. It could have easily been Renton's parents. Couldn't we? Could have had a lot about the suffering they had endured, but it wasn't. We were we were never really taken out of that, as you say, that youthfulness. And and, and once again, the guys all through him that it was it was it was quite weird actually because you're you're interviewing numerous occasions the three voices that created Train Spotting. And it's very rare you say that, isn't it? It's mm. is it Danny Boyle is Danny Boyle. He's almost a, he's almost a brand, isn't it, Danny Boyle? But they were very much the threesome, and all three of them believed that this wasn't a film about drugs. This was a film about youth, as, as you alluded to, John. Is it literally was a film about young people, and the drugs were just a side product of them being a gang. And in fact, the most dangerous character of the of the sort of four or five principal characters is kind of the oldest one. Is Begsbee, who's this yeah. uh, you know. He's kind of is your older brother's age, if you if yeah, you like. Yeah, which was really this dichotomy, wasn't it? Why on earth? And I asked Robert this as well. Why on earth was he hanging around them? They had nothing in common with them. You could get Tommy. You know, he wasn't into drugs initially. You know, because they were all the same age. But what on earth was Bag- Begby's attraction? And Robert said, no. Did he fancy him? You know, was he was he a homosexual? You know, was he was he a repressed homosexual? And he said, and all these clues, and that's what I sort of. That's I was, as an actor, you're picking up all these little clues, either in the text or as you as you get the, the costume together. And I thought that was really interesting as well, because Begbie is such an iconic figure and the clothes are so iconic. But when he originally turned up, he had a full beard. He had army greens on. God almighty, yeah, by the grace of God, it wouldn't have been the Begbie that you and I know. And we all know and almost love, rather bizarrely. But ha- having grown up, you know, around that era, and the football, horrible hooliganism. I mean, I used to go to West Ham a lot. And, you know, in retrospect, you can't believe your parents let you go as a young boy because it was so violent, so horrible. Mm. Never take, it's never family sport. Mm. It really wasn't. It was horrible environment. And that's what Robert picked up, these, these, these football casuals. This is very expensive clothes and they labelled these expensive clothes to advertise just how expensive they were and then go and get them ripped to pieces by having a fight. And that was Begbie, wasn't it? It really was. All the others are sort of almost, you know, in scruffy clothes that you'd perhaps think that a, a drug addict would wear. And there was Begbie rising above it all with his pastel colour Pringle jumpers on. Remarkable. 
<laughs> he's so, he's so he, I mean, he reminds me a little bit of, it's a totally different character, but almost Gary Oldman from The Firm, you know, from that yeah, Alan yeah, Clark yeah, yeah, film. film. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, that same sort of lot, very, you know, intelligent, but mm. also sociopathic. Yeah. Charming, as you say, there's an element of charm, there's an element of, but that violence is just, can come out of nowhere at any point. Yeah. yeah. And it would put... Gal Stevens is, is is one of the sort of unsung heroes of that of the tale. We're the casting agent, and she'd seen Roberts in the Cracker episode. I don't know if you mm. call that. We put it's Robbie Coltrane series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, and you can see some of um, Roberts' scenes if you if you don't go and buy the DVD or Cracker if it's available. You can certainly find it on YouTube. And I remember watching it at the time. I really I truly do. And he plays a. a, a a skinhead, if you like, for want of a better description, and he's absolutely psychotic. He's a horrible person. And Gal had seen that, and she thought, "Oh, I need to cut, start casting him." And you know, as anybody who would know who's read Urban's book, Begbie is this huge character. He's Gandalf. He's bloody huge. Mm-hmm. And um, as we allude to in the book, I don't want to spoil too much of it, but Robert had cut, Robert had been auditioning for Shallow Grave, and things didn't happen for him there. For one reason or another, which will be revealed in the book. And then, and then he's offered the opportunity to come and audition for Train Spot. And I think, okay, what's this about? So he goes down, has a chat with Danny, and Danny says, "What role do you want to play?" And he said, "You know, before my ass had even hit the seat, I'd been offered this gig." And that, that I, you know, he hadn't done the full Monty at that stage. He wasn't right. a huge star, and there he was getting offered a film off the bat. Oh, I, I don't know, I'm not a sick boy. No, no, no. What about Begbie? Begbie, Begbie's huge. No, 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 no. Danny said. Small psychos are the best. And oh, man, what do you mean? Absolutely just stunning. And Danny said, to, he saw the sort of the, the um, quizzical look on Robert's face and said, give it a week, go away, have a think about it. He said, the more I thought about it, I thought, you're right. Those, the, when you see in a bar, aren't you? You can, you, John, you know, you've been there and you can see the small ones and, oh, they're just sizing somebody up to, to kick off. And it's so true. They got that, they got something to prove. Yeah. They are, aren't they? And um, and boy, did he capture that in that character, didn't he? When he came back and said, yeah, okay, I'll do the role. And oh, man, one of the defining characters. He's sort of Don Logan, isn't he? A sexy beast. He's just, you don't know where he's going, what's going to happen. And as a viewer, even now, and you you know the film so well, you're still, oh, my God. You know, when that poor lad, man, brushes into him in the bar, doesn't he? Watch where you're going. If you can't handle your drink, you just know what's coming. It's a, it's the Joe Pesci danger element that you just mm. think, uh, you know, this guy is utterly dangerous. Is utterly, you know, you haven't got a clue what's going to happen next, but it's not mm. good. It's it's probably not going to be good. Yes, yeah. And both, you know, it sounds like I'm clanging away here. You know, I interviewed both of them, and they're both really, really lovely guys, and both. As you, if you were outcast in the film, you'd, you know, in these two, you couldn't get either of them. You'd say, "I'd want a Joe Pes- Pesci, Robert Carlyle type, wouldn't you?" Because of those two films in particular, or yeah. the films that they've done, and um, both such nice guys, so humble and laid back, and nothing like the characters they play really. So they film some location stuff in Edinburgh, and they film yes. some in the Highlands. But the interiors, uh, are they filming that in a sort of like a studio in Glasgow? Yeah, they were all filmed in a, in a cigarette factory. Right, we all sort of makeshifts, a yeah. makeshifts. Yeah, yeah. they'd learnt that from Shallow Grave. You can get so much more buck for your bang if you don't do too much location shooting. And they so saw once again, Saul Metzstein was was given the task of finding a big enough unit 
to shoot that in. He found the Wills factory. They they did the deal and, and got it for a steal, £7,000 or whatever it was, rented it, turned it into their studio. One of the stumbling blocks could have been that there, there wasn't a lot of hype in there to create you know, film. You know, a cinematographer wants to come in and pan in, whereas Danny tr- treated that as a blessing because when, when they went up to Edinburgh and tasked Saul with um, showing them Urban Welsh's train spot in Edinburgh, a lot of the drug dens they went into, Danny said they were literally on the ground. They'd be chatting to these drug acts on the ground because they're going to end up there anyhow, so they spend a lot of time on the ground. So he asked Brian Tufano to come up, how are we going to film from the ground? So the, the hype restrictions in this Will's cigarette factory were null and void because Danny wanted everything really shot low, low down, keep it low. From floor level. Yeah, yeah, exactly, floor level. Which, which is just Danny's genius, really. It's just the ability to come up with these things and and surround yourself by talented people like Cave and Brian and and people such like that. There's a real vision there. I mean, you obviously, when you're talking about a director, it's something that a director is almost it's the it's the one quality they have to have. But that mm. that vision of you know small psychos are the best, and uh, and yeah. we we want everything from from the floor level is yeah is is exactly what they're 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 there for. With the I mean, one of the things about this movie that I think goes beyond it being simply a movie is that at the time nineteen ninety six when it came out, it was kind of ubiquitous because it wasn't just in the cinemas; it was on students' walls. Uh, we all had the yeah. posters. We had, yeah. you know, the posters were were, were outside on this, were, were fly posted up everywhere. The posters actually looked like posters for what could be a nightclub or a gig or something. Then they were they were parodied, you know, on yeah. and on by everybody. And there was also, you know, I, I've already mentioned the haircuts and the fashion to some degree. And then there was a soundtrack that was that was a huge hit as well. So it, it it's the film of the '90s, the British film of the '90s, which which I think most achieved the the nature of a a phenomenon rather than just a film yes yeah absolutely spot on and that was key in particular to andrew as the producer he had spent a little bit of time in america working in america and when he came back he, he 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 realized that what the americans do so well is they make the film but as that even before they've made it but certainly whilst they're making it they're making that connection how can we sell it how can we find an audience what, what's that key? Whereas it, it, a lot of what he found working in the British film industry, a lot of the time they make the film and got no idea how they're going to sell it, where they're going to go with it. And he didn't want that in particular for Train Spot. And what had happened on Shallow Grave was that the soundtrack had almost taken them by surprise and they had to play catch up with Train Spot. And he wanted that soundtrack and he wanted to sell the film from the get go. And because the Shallow Grave had been so successful compared to the budget, they would get all the polygram said okay we're going to spend a lot of money on this and they spent nearly over eight hundred thousand pounds just promoting it which for the for the size of the film and the time it was huge huge so, so it's almost as much as the budget i mean there's yeah, exactly. a million shooting budget and then at eight hundred thousand yeah. it's only two hundred thousand short of the of that yeah, budget exactly which is just remarkable so they get the the lorenzo the wonderful photographer in and Blam to design the poster, Lorenzo to start working out how they were going to shoot the, the for the poster. They're coming up great ideas during it, as opposed to so many of the NAF film posters you can think of that are thought about as an afterthought at the end. This poster was almost, this is what we're going to do. Before the film had shot, they wanted to make sure it was a band. That was key to them. 
to the, each character because the Irvin's book was growing in popularity, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't a Lord of the Rings where a lot of people already knew of it. They, well, who are these characters? So they wanted to create that on the poster. So the, the characters were already on the poster. Of people who are they? They're bloody cool. So you're intrigued and you're asking questions. So that was key. So that was being taken care of. And then the soundtrack. If somebody knows more about the music industry than Danny Ball, and I've yet to see meet them. I mean, he literally knows everything about music. He absolutely adores it. And it was huge. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Fan of the rave music, dance music, and he'd found Dumb No Bass, the Underworld album. I don't think that's the title, actually. Um, the un- Underworld album. And he said to Andrew and John, this, this is how I perceive this soundtrack to the film. And if you've heard the album, it's pretty intense. And the mm. whole film. No, 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 that's just the vibe. That's the, that's the vibe. And then he built a collection of tapes up so they could start editing the, the, the film. And, you know, they're, they're on there is Lust for Life. You've got some Bowie, you've got some Lou Reed, you've got some quite heavy weighted songs on there that are going to cost a fortune. And Andrew, knowing this, started putting it together and they worked out this step deal. So each artist would get paid a very minimal amount as a thank you and as the salt as the soundtrack become more successful they'd earn more money consequently everybody earned money from that soundtrack because it just went through the roof and i mean <laughs> i mean how do you ask iggy pop this because obviously he's just one of the icons but Irvin had, had alluded to it how lust for life had given him a new lease of life so i needed to sort of put that question to iggy and he said did you did you because i had it in first hand because i had an older brother and he was into Lou Reed and Bowie and Iggy Pop. So consequently, I was. But some of the guys that I knew had never heard of Iggy Pop. Mm-hmm. And then when Trainspotting came out, they were all over Iggy Pop. Bloody hell, you hated him. And, you know, you that territory <laughs> feel you get when you're a kid. You know, how dare you come into the music like, and literature and films that I like. And so he, he, certainly there was this rejuvenation of his career. Danny ended up reshooting the, the, the um, Lust for Life video. And the, the, the boys at MTV got hold of it and they took it and... Before you knew it, there's a whole new audience he was playing to. And I put that to Iggy. He said, no, no. I already thought I was huge. I, I just, no, I was huge in my world, my mind. I was already a megastar. No, no. So he wouldn't have, you know, so he wouldn't have it. But <laughs> the, the, Irvin said that's the greatest thing, really, that, that's to come from the film. And the success is that shared success. So mm. his book was this tiny little book that had suddenly started growing. But with that, he then became friends with his hero, Iggy Pop, to this day. And then he made friends with Danny and Andrew and Ewan and John that has carried on. And anybody who's met Urban Wells would allude to it as well. He's 
without getting too schmaltzy, he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. One of the right. most giving guys you'll ever meet. Oh, yeah, I'm proud to say he's a friend and he's just, he really is. I mean, without him, there wouldn't have been this book. Just to right. go right back to the beginning. I had written the, the, my first release book on the, on the film Performance and I read that Urban Welsh and Dean Kavner were writing this play about two East End gangsters auditioning for the film Performance. Bloody hell. So I got in touch with Irvin by a friend I said Look, this is what I'm up to he said we'll shoot down to Edinburgh so we shot down to Edinburgh to the, the festival saw the play met up and we kept in touch and he ended up contributing to the performance book and the legacy section and then I said look come on we should be looking at doing a book with a similar kind of feel to for train spotting he said give me five and when some people say that you, there's five years five months he literally was five minutes came back and said I'm going to send you an email to introduce you to Danny I told him the project I told him Nick Rogue and he said what's not to like yeah. So without that intro from Urban Welsh, there wouldn't have been a, a book, and, and that's the, the measure of the man. And so for him to then share that with the Danny Balls of this world, Danny, sorry, Iggy Pops, it's just wonderful to, to see that. Now, I, without being so terrible, I can look back and see that you know, Lust for Life. Just couldn't imagine a song like not opening that film. Could you any other song? I mean, I was a Stooges fan, and I remember being a bit sniffy about Iggy Pop as like a solo artist. It's like, oh, the Stooges are amazing, but, you know, after that he goes a bit metal, and he's, you know... I... Pop as well, was he, wasn't it? Got a bit poppy. Yeah, exactly, and, and you know, that wild child thing, and yeah, and it really was train spotting made me go, okay, maybe I should listen to this, yeah. this other, these other albums as well. Yeah, what a great album as well. But I mean, also, I think that musical choice has something to do with the the dates of of the film compared to the dates of the book. That Irving Welsh is sort of writing something which is a little bit earlier than the the sort of the nineteen ninety six yeah basically contemporary setting. Yeah, it's odd though, isn't it? Because as a as a what became really obvious to me whilst I was writing the book, and I dare say I hadn't really given it an awful lot of thought beforehand. There's no, there's no logic to the soundtrack. Mm. You've, got, you've got the 70s Lou Reed and Iggy Pop. Then you've got a bit of the 80s Heaven 17. And then you've got a bit of the 90s with Primal Scream and Blur. But you don't age in the film at all. The film doesn't age. But the soundtrack just takes you through it. And it's, it's remarkable. An underworld, left field. I mean, they shouldn't even been on the same soundtrack, but it works so well. To me, that feels really realistic in terms of how bunches of young people create their own microclimates of culture. And so even with the sort of Sean Connery impersonations in the park, yeah. there's this sort of cultural referencing, which is why are these guys in the 90s looking to Sean Connery and not looking yeah. to someone more recent? It's well, well, that's that's just who they've grown up with. And that's one of the reasons for, perhaps why it resonates so well. Because historically, it's got such a big history around it. Yeah. You're learning things. And, you know, I'd say I was fortunate enough to have older brothers. But if you didn't and you you, you were coming to it fresh, okay, who, who's Lou Reed? Who's Iggy Pop? Oh, Sean Connery and Bond. And you start investigating things, isn't it? It's, it's how we all get into our music and, and our books. When, when one of your heroes references somebody from back your, you go, oh, okay, who's this? Okay, Robert De Niro. Marlon Brando, Montgomery Cliff, Jimmy Dean. Okay, I'm going to start looking at these guys. And, that, and that's what, just what happens, isn't it? And I think Trainspotting is littered with those references that you can just go back and explore. I wanted to ask as well, in terms of the legacy of the film, where do you see sort of Trainspotting fitting in to the sort of tradition of British cinema? Because you've done performance, which I think is a very, is, is a really amazing 
British movie. And I think Rogue is a really, is one of the most exciting British directors, along with Michael Powell and, you know, Powell and Pressburger and a few others, to, to, you know, to be absolutely honest, you know, there seems to be that tradition. And, and I, I kind of think of, of Boyle in that in that sort of non-social realistic tradition. They're not making socially realistic films. They're not Ken Loach. They're not uh, Mike Lee. Although Mike Lee sometimes isn't Mike Lee either. So What I picked up is that they really wanted their, their film to be seen by an audience and that they were not going to sell out. They weren't going to make something they didn't want to make. I mean, look at it now. I mean, Shallow Grave, Trainspotting, even The Life Less Ordinary were very... They weren't following any trends. They were... I mean... No one would have assumed that Trainspotting could be anything but a failure, really. It could have easily been a dour film, and they wanted to make something totally different. And I think that's what Danny's, one of Danny's heroes is, is Nick Rogue. So, I mean, you alluded to him there, and that certainly got me in the door. And then Andrew McDonald is Emmett Pressburger's grandson. Right. So these guys are steeped in it. And John Hodge, not in the film industry at all, he's a qualified doctor. And so all these lovely components all came together. And like a lot of these films, when you when you start investigating them and you start asking people for the references and whys and that, and a lot, so many of them with the performance to Adrian Ball, to Train Spotting, they one thing that really perhaps binds them together is that the artists involved didn't really think about it too hard. It's <laughs> us people are looking back on it. Oh, that reference, that and that reference, that. No, not really. It wasn't that at all. It, it, we've done it because we've done it. It was no deep thinking about it. And that, I think that's a, a lot of it, that these guys are well, just fearless, really. If, mm. One thing that certainly links Rogue and Boyle and some of the other fine filmmakers we've had. I'm loath to call it an industry. We've never really had an industry over here, have we? We've got really these peaks and troughs all the time. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree with that. It's a really discontinuous thing. And, and I mean, there's a whole generation in the 1980s, and I think Boyle sort of is somewhere in between them. The, they they just immediately sort of piss off to, to America at the first opportunity. I mean, I love Ridley Scott, but he's I don't think he's made a, a film set in, in no. the UK, except maybe Robin Hood, you could you could argue. Yeah. But some people have argued that maybe Blade Runner is actually very similar to... South Shields, where he uh, where he grew up. There's, there's a big oil refinery out there. So. Yeah, it's a bit tenuous, that one, isn't it? That, trying to make that link. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, Alan Parker as well, Adrian Lyne, they all sort of, the minute they had the opportunity, they went, they went to the States. Danny Boyle had, you know, had two solid sort of British films before sort of making his and and yeah and and has come back he's you know he's done he's done more more than one film back in in britain since sounds a little bit too much of a love fest this chat but he once again he's such a lovely given humble guy and that that comes through and, and it's why people want to go back keep working with him he's, he really is well unless you're johnny rotten particularly doesn't like him at the moment because of the sex pistols um series he's just about to release but yeah he's such a great guy and to me he's one of the he's been one of the huge joys writing this story would you have liked to have seen his james bond yeah you know, i was only saying that the other night i've been in, certainly been interested in what what it, john hodge writing the scripts and but having seen the film i thoroughly enjoyed the new film so who knows who knows these things happen for a reason don't they yeah, I heard the reason. I, I'm not sure how true this is because it came out of it, but I heard the uh, the reason was he 
him and John Hodge didn't want to to kill Bond at the end, and that was the the a day fix. That was the fixed idea that they had for the producers. They were like, we want Craig to finish his final film by dying. No, I didn't ask Danny that. I've not, I, to this day, I've never asked him. I suppose I should really. Well, I'd be I'd be curious to find out if you do ask him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Even if it's not off the record, I'm fine. I'm fine just knowing personally without having to. Okay. Yeah, no, that would be, that would have been an interesting, that's going to be one of those, you know, films that never were. I should get David Hughes on there. You know, he yeah, wrote that. I'm sure he'd have an answer. But yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? It was, it was, it was always a, a, an odd one because Danny's such an individual filmmaker. You can't imagine him making, I mean, it was initially they were going, he got the call to, to make Alien 3, I think it was, all three of them. And they were, no, we don't really want to get caught up in that machine. And I think Danny's such an individual filmmaker, even then when, even with something like Yesterday, which could have been too sweet and saccharine, he, he put his little bits to it and, and made it his own. Slumdog Millionaire was was going to be straight to video. And it, right. just, it found a life and then took off. And he does put his, his spin on it. And to, yeah, to me, he's one of, he's one of, our, one of our greats. I mean, if, if he did nothing else other than train spotting and then the Olympic Games, it's just his bookend my life is certainly to me is one of the defining films in the 90s train spotting of any decade really and to, to i mean when i interviewed noel gallagher for the book you know, he, he he put it to him hit train spotting and pulp fiction when the defining films in the 90s well if you're up against pulp fiction that's not a bad place to be is it to be classed as the defining film of a generation and as i said to the top of it is it's to me, you know, sitting there chatting to Ewan Bremner and, and, and Kevin McKidd and Robert Carlyle and Ewan McGregor, and you see their careers they've had. And to think that Ewan Bremner was going to turn the film down because yeah, he, he couldn't play, he wasn't offered Renton, he played Renton on stage for two years. Just can't imagine anybody else playing Spud than Ewan Bremner. He just captured that heart and soul of a, of a character. That, yeah, just a wonderful piece of acting and casting. And you, you just saw you mentioned about hairstyles, but I think what we, we was also was really interesting to speak to Rachel Fleming, the costume designer, because her costumes get overlooked a little bit. And we're still wearing skinny jeans now because yeah. of Rachel Fleming. I, I spoke to Ewan about that, and he said that, um, you know, as he's getting older, he tries to put on a more relaxed jean on. But when he does, he feels like his dad. Because <laughs> <laughs> he just can't, he's, and that all comes from, from Rachel Fleming's wonderful costume. Yeah, and uh, Diane's sequined dress. Spoiler alert. But you now that morning after, and they wake up, and Renton's asking the, the you two <laughs> Diane's flatmates. Yeah. <laughs> and they look at each other, and she walks in the school uniform. I mean, I still remember the shock in the in the cinema really for everybody you know it's it's a wonderful scene and i think that's the lovely thing about the movie as well as you start off thinking this is a again going back to what i was saying earlier maybe about it being a youth film and then by the end of the film kind of they've outlived they've outstayed their welcome they're not young met people anymore they're not young men anymore the music has changed ecstasy is coming in you know they don't speak they don't understand it It reminded me of that scene in clockwork orange at the, the final chapter of anthony burgess's book where um, Alex is in a cafe and he's just gone back to his old ways and a bunch of people start talking and he doesn't, they're, they're younger than him and he doesn't understand them. It's like, they're not talking the same lingo I was, I'm talking. So it's just like, well, you've got older, mate. You, you know, you're no longer the young terror that you thought you were. That's right. And all of that, all of that took place in, in 90 minutes. Yeah, you know, yeah. Talking a film that had so much in 90 minutes. It was like a, like a, a 
great pop song, wasn't it? Three minutes in and out, done, dusted, you create a great pop song. And they did that with a 90 minute film. Punk songs, even, you know, like sort of yeah. two minutes, yeah. 30 seconds. Sort of. Danny's a huge fan of, of punk music and he, he made a punk film. It really was interesting to hear that and to hear, hear that edit come together. And it's just a remarkable, um, remarkable film. And it's just, it's, to me, when, when I came up with the idea of, of writing the book on the film, I did give myself a few minutes to, to think, well, can I pull it off? But also as well, is anybody else doing it? And no one else was doing it, which I found remarkable that no one else had written a book about the making of one of the most iconic British films ever. And, and also, I mean, before we before we move on totally, the I, what I would like to add to our sort of Danny Boyle love fest. I really like his genre pieces. I really love 28 Days Later and mm. 28 Weeks Later. I know he didn't direct it, he was producing it, but there's some good bits in that as well. And um, and Sunshine, I think, is, is a really underrated. I'm not sure if it's underrated. I don't know exactly where it's stands i'm not sure what the conversation is around but i think it's brilliant i mean that's a, a, a super very british feeling science fiction film yeah yeah he, he has that he has that knack doesn't he that to 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 pull you into whatever he's doing really and i just find it phenomenal that that one two of shallow grave and train spotting were literally their first films and that's what came that's what was really not shocking but i loved writing but from, if you you take it john you know you've you, you've written i've written and um John Hodge's first screenplay was Shallow Grave. It wasn't the tenth screenplay, and he had six others sitting in a drawer. It was his first screenplay. It got made into a film. His second screenplay got made into a film. His third screenplay got made into a film. I mean, that just never happens. And I put that to John as well, and he said, "I know. I just when you think about it, it's just remarkable." Now he said, "I can sit in development hell for ages. I'll have three or four other writers attached to a project I've been on." You know, I'm now in what the screenwriter's world is. But at the beginning of my career, it was, okay, I've written the film. Oh, it's going to be made. Well, yeah, of course it's going to be made. I've just written it. No, 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 that's not how it works. <laughs> that's not normal. No, absolutely just remarkable. God, I must be say, I must say, I, I'm beginning to hate him. Like, ludicrous good luck. <laughs> that lovely innocence of youth, not realising what the parameters are, what the rules are. And if you don't know what the parameters and rules are, there's nothing you don't, you're not fearing of breaking them, are you? And they're certainly not stifling you. You get out there and you do your thing and you, you just see what happens. And I think that's, you know, looking out in my garden, I can see my children's trampoline and you know, they get up and bounce up and down on that and without a care in the world. And you get to a certain age, you're fearful jumping up and down it, aren't you? And that's, that, that's life, isn't it? The more you learn, the, the less chances you've got of taking risks, unless you're really foolhardy like us into writing and that. And you take a few risks because if you don't, then where are you going to get? But when it's younger, it's a lot easier to take those risks, isn't it? I went skiing for the first time in my life when I was like 36, and it's just like, no, that's totally the wrong time. You you, you have yeah. to you have to be fearless and bouncy and have rubber bones yeah. and you know, so so like the, the eight year olds are, are whipping past you, whipping past me as I tumble yeah. for the ninth time. It's like, okay, I've I've done enough of that. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> so train spotting is out. It's making of train spotting is out. It's selling incredibly well by by all accounts what are your next projects well i'm at the moment writing another book my third with robert de niro's encouragement this one on taxi driver so i'm deep into to that and unearthing some really great towels and just putting sort of forced a few um punching a few myths as well which i'm learning which is really good and it's been it's, it's quite a hard one to piece together actually because the the timeline is all over the show because it was 
it took so long to get off the ground. And Michael Phillips, the producer, and Paul Schrader, I've interviewed, and obviously Bob and Marty, they, they, they all had to have these things ha happen in their career before anybody be would believe that they could make Taxi Driver. So just quickly, and Paul Schrader had written Taxi Driver in a very dark moment in his life, and then wrote a, a screenplay called Yakuza. That was sold for a then astronomical sum of $325,000. And now he he's a he's a top-rated screenwriter. Uh, Michael Phillips, new to the film industry, within weeks, are deciding to hang their shingle out in Los Angeles. His young screenwriter had, had come in and pitched this movie, Verbal Pitch. And they said, that sounds good. What else have you written? He said, well, I've written this screenplay as was you know was some at college that got made the pitched film was the sting that one best film so suddenly now they've got a really high profile screenwriter they've got an oscar winning producer then bob won the oscar for godfather 2 marty didn't have mean streets out at that stage so they wouldn't give him the film mean streets come out and they were oh hang on a minute okay we're going to give you the film now and you've got to have johnny boys travis marty the studios wouldn't really believe in, in him as a director until ellen bernstein he directed ellen bernstein to best actress oscar so suddenly you had all these components but even then they were only given just over i think it was nine hundred thousand dollars and it rose the budget rose much grief from the studio to 1.3. I mean, 1.3 million dollars for Taxi Driver. I mean, I mean, just forget it, forget it already. There's a couple of days catering on the movie. Yeah, and it's shooting in New York. It's not like uh, it's not like it's one of those low budget films where you're you're in a, a single location or something like that. You're on the streets of New York. Yeah, and it becomes the character. It is a character that New York, you know, is on its knees financially. So it's been really interesting to investigate this film calls out to Sybil Shepherd and Jodie Foster so we're hopefully chatting soon and that'd be I'm really looking forward to piecing that one together I mean really yeah. you know it's, it's not a chore it's been an absolute joy to to once you get the timeline right and you can you can piece the narrative together it's been yeah it has been and I've been unearthing some really uh, uh, some of the runners some of the young actors at the time I found them and I love finding these people. That to me, that you know, each one of my books is peppered by a young runner or somebody because these guys have never had an opportunity to tell their story and it's right. so wonderful to get them. Bloody hell, you can write a book like this without Bob on board. But likewise, I do love finding some of the some of the unsung heroes, shall we say. Yeah, who have different stories as well, different perspectives. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And come on, it's Taxi Driver. Mm. It's just one of the greatest films ever made. And have you have you got Albert Brooks? Certainly written away from I haven't had any feedback from Albert yet, but I found a couple of interviews. So yeah, I'm desperate to get him and I'm a little bit more relaxed about it now, finding the components because uh, building the story and, and you just you hope that you're gonna get these people on board. So I'm I'm hoping that Albert will come on board. I mean I don't know Albert Brooks at all, but I'm hoping that he will. It's, my book's always a celebration. I'm not asking to any of the salacious sort of gossip unless it drives the narrative along i'm not interested so hopefully you see the the benefit of coming on board because it's it, it certainly it's going to be another beautiful beautiful book and then we've got some fingers in i've got some fingers in some other pies that i'm starting moving forward i can't really say just yet exciting exciting times listen jay you've already been on once and so you've given us some recommended books but i'm going to ask you for another recommended book because because yeah why not why wouldn't i and you've got a room full you can't see this obviously on the podcast but behind jay there are shelves and shelves and shelves of yeah. film books yes. look just view around that walls as well look at the mess there <laughs> look at thousands of them um well 
we spoke at the top of this actually so i'll go with patrick patrick mcgillian yeah his backstory series are absolutely top-notch they are set into separate decades and they center on screenwriters of the 30s 40s 50s 60s 70s and absolutely amazing they've been really amazing books they're just feats of they're just one of the some of the greatest stories i've ever heard and read and yeah, it's a masterful collection. And he interviewed like all these screenwriters and many of these screenwriters, you know, nobody had interviewed before. People like Julius mm. Epstein, who wrote, who's one of the writers on Casablanca, wrote loads yeah. of, and he, he's, he's going there and he's just getting so much wisdom and knowledge out of these guys. Yes, seriously, I can't recommend them enough. And as you say, they really are, you know, the names that if you're, any, if you're involved in any form of film history, you'd recognise, but chances are you probably never read an interview with them, but Patrick unearthed them and yeah he he really is one of the one of the greats and i haven't listened to your episode with him yet but i'll certainly be listening to it either tonight or tomorrow because he he's one of the the greats in the in the film history historians he really is one of the great writers so yeah they're, they're backstory series get on the ebay and grab yourself some copies of those they are phenomenal Brilliant, brilliant, great recommendation and uh, and fantastic. I'll also put a link to uh, Train Spotting, the making of, and you have Raging Bull performance and the Deer Hunters. Are they all still available? Yes, yeah, there was, there was, there was copies yet. I don't think Train Spotting will be around for too long. Um, we had a little bit of a mess up with um, a delivery of this sort of second batch, if you like, and we didn't receive them till Christmas Eve, so they went on sale again today. I'd delight to say the orders have been flooding in. It's, uh, they're not cheap. I know they're not cheap, but they take such a lot of work and effort, and they're huge, huge, huge times. So I think we certainly haven't had any complaints thus far from anybody who's bought copies. I'm very pleased for you. It's definitely something that you deserve and uh, and something that the films deserve as well. It's, Thank it's, you. It's and wonderful. just before we sign off as well, a little bit of blowing some smoke your way. This series and what you've achieved, John, has been seriously it's been absolutely superb i remember from the get-go you and i spoke on twitter and you said this is what i'm going to be doing anybody had interested yeah and um so i just put my hat as a yes and then no thought of you interviewing me about my books i don't know why but because I, I, I wanted to learn about the authors you, i knew you were going to be chatting to so hats off to you pal for what you've achieved because honestly this series absolutely superb and i noticed that you were in one of the magazines was it time out new york or something like that who said you were one of, one of the great podcasts to listen to in 2022 and here here cheers mate i really appreciate it and uh and yeah we'll come back and talk about your next book taxi driver sure thing buddy keep nice. well take care So that was Jay and myself talking about train spotting principally, although uh, he also gave a, pre a, a little bit of a taster of his next book on Taxi Driver. Jay's books are amazing and uh, come highly recommended. I'd also like to repeat his recommended book, which was Patrick McGilligan's Backstory series of books. There are five books altogether, include all interviews with screenwriters, and so you'll already have heard, I hope, the episode where I talked to Patrick. But yeah, they, they, are, they are well worth uh, going back to and having a look at. They're really, really great series of interviews. So, uh, all that's left, all that's left for me to do is to thank Ellie Atkins for the music, thank Ali Harwood for the artwork, and until next week, take care.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 